Isaiah 43. A part of Isaiah 43. But now saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sebar for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honourable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee, I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Much more we could read, but that is an introduction to this section of the prophet Isaiah that we have before us. This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and is number seven of the series dealing with the prophecy of Isaiah. In this series, we're not attempting the impossible. To take a book of 66 chapters with such a tremendous amount in it, and deal with it verse by verse, would be to frustrate our very purpose. We have adopted the name in our witness of the Bereans. And the name Berean means nothing more but, first of all, the name of a village in Greece. Uh, but they've come down to us with this mark upon them. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica, inasmuch as they received the word with all readiness of mind and then searched the scriptures daily to see if it was so. Uh, we still have that feeling that if those of you who are listening to these studies think that this is the be-all and the end-all of the study of the word of God, oh well, you'll be disappointed. 
I can be very little help to you unless you are willing to take the hints that are given in this brief moment and then search and see for yourselves and make the truth your own. Let us not be marching about with second-hand armour. Let us see to it that the sword of the Spirit that we have is one with which we are acquainted and able to use. Now the section before us is a large one, and on the chart I haven't been able to put the whole because of the amount of space. But I think it would be wise if I just step through this skeleton. Uh, a skeleton is not very nice, but it's very necessary. Uh, just step through this skeleton of the parts which are exhibited, because by so doing it brings into prominence the outstanding features that the prophet was out to teach, and then at your leisure, if you possess such an article, you can fill in the intervals and get the links together and so become acquainted with the very smaller details. You will notice that there's a stress upon the word witness. This is in the 43rd chapter, verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and in the authorised version, when L-O-R-D is spelled in full capitals, I think most of us know that the original is the sacred name of God in the Old Testament, the name Jehovah. So without having a word to say with regard to any modern denomination or sect or movement, here is the basis, here is the original statement, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now whether Jehovah's Witnesses now or at any other time conform to the teaching of this is a moot point and is not within our scope. But there were witnesses that God called, and here they are mentioned. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And emphasizes the fact, in verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. There is no Saviour beside Jehovah. You say, well, what about the New Testament? The Lord Jesus Christ is particularly emphasised as a saviour. Well, we must still say, if we're Jehovah's Witnesses, that beside Jehovah there is no saviour. Well, you say, if you're not careful, you'll be making the Lord Jesus Christ equivalent to the Jehovah of the Old Testament. I say, most surely we will. Because in the Old Testament we have the great confession of Deuteronomy. Behold, he said, the Lord, our God is one Lord. And in the New Testament, we get the Lord Jesus Christ exhibited as the one Lord. And it's not possible for any of us to believe that there's one Lord that belongs to the Old Testament and another one Lord that belongs to the New. And consequently, we must feel our way very carefully before we come to definite conclusions. But here's a, here's a witness concerning the Lord who is Saviour. You will see the items that are listed out in verses 10 to 13. It mentions you are my witnesses at the beginning and at the end. Uh, again in verse 12, I have declared and have saved and have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Uh, we look down a little bit further and you will notice in chapter 44, the subject is resumed. The subject is resumed in chapter 44, verses 8 and 9. 
Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So this is the challenge that's ringing through these chapters. These are to bear a witness that there is no God beside the Lord and no Saviour except the Lord himself. And um, another feature is the relationship of Babylon and Jerusalem. Now again, here's a twofold chord that runs through the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, we have the two cities coming before us. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, that's Nimrod, and then we have the Melchizedek priest who was king of Salem, that's Jerusalem. And those two cities, with their systems and their fortunes, dominate the scriptures from Genesis, they go right through to the book of the Revelation, and not till till we read Babylon is fallen, till we have the Hallelujahs and the beginning of the glory that's yet to dawn. So again, you see, to pursue the story of Babylon, or the story of Jerusalem, with its downfall and its restoration, and its ultimate place in the earth and its glories, is a subject all to itself. And at the bottom of this chart, you see in chapter 44, 23, not only do we have the Babylon in the first case, but we have Jerusalem in the latter. So we'll look at that, because that's going to lead on to our next study, God willing, another time. 44, 27. 27. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. Even say to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. So there the story is linking what has taken place in the past to prove that it can take place in the future. Cyrus, he figures in the return of Israel under Ezra for the rebuilding of the temple and the days of Nehemiah for the rebuilding of the wall of the city. Cyrus, raised up by God and told, spoken about him by name before he was born. Now that's another story. But the link between history, past, and prophecy future is the very characteristic of this prophecy of Isaiah. Because you do remember that we have 35 chapters in Isaiah, then we come to a stop. And instead of prophecy, we are told about the days when Sennacherib uh, threatened to besiege Jerusalem, and our Hezekiah laid the matter before the Lord, and with all the boasting of Zechariah, a hook was put in his nose and he was taken back to his land and there he was assassinated. Well, why stop the prophecy to put a bit of history into it? Well, it's this, that anybody could write prophecies that are supposed to be fulfilled in two or three or four thousand years' time. But God says, but what I am going to do, I have done. He continually reminds these people and says, you remember what I did when I led your people in the early days through the Red Sea and brought them to myself. Think of the plagues that fell upon Egypt, and then look at the book of the Revelation and see the repeat of them in a vaster scale. So the history and the prophecy are intertwined. 
And this uh, Cyrus, of course, is leads on into chapter 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to his anointed, here was a king that knew him not, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings, and you read the prophet Daniel, and that took place. You remember that Belshazzar was feasting with his lords, and suddenly there came a finger writing upon the plaster of the wall, Mini, Mini, Tiku, Nufasin, and the loins of that king shook. And while he was sitting there feasting, Outside the army had, de- had uh, de- deflected the course of the river and had marched through the riverbed and took the city without fighting. It's all spoken of here before ever it took place. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leave gates and the gates shall not be shut. And so on. We come back again and we see that there's an emphasis that is under the letter C in both of these members of this structure, an emphasis upon redemption and forgiveness. Uh, Verses 18 to 25 of chapter 43. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Here is throwing them back to what God had done, so they may get comfort and consolation and realize he, he can do it again. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And then we get down in verse 25 those precious words, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sakes and will not remember thy sins. Do remember that blotting out is associated by David in Psalm 51, he says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me. There's two sides to the forgiveness of sins. There's the blotting out of a record, and there's the cleansing of the defilement. And David was conscious of both. Blot out from the record, cleanse me, and restore me. So in David's case, there was almost a picture of the restoration of the people of Israel that he represented. And then you'll see that this is repeated in, in the uh, 21st and 22nd verses of, um, just for a moment, the 40, where are we? 44. Remember these, see the word remember again, throwing your mind back, all, all Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, thou art my servant, Israel, thou should not be forgotten of me, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. That almost anticipates the words in the book of the Revelation. He that sat upon the throne said, It is done. The Lord hath done it. Shout ye lower parts of the earth. Bring forth into, um, into singing ye mountains. All forest and every tree therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. You notice, as you read these chapters, any amount of times it alternates the two titles, Israel and Jacob. Not one, 
to the expense of the other but both. Now Jacob means a supplanter and belongs to the life story of that son of Abraham and Isaac before he was, as, as we might put it, converted. He was a schemer. His mother helped him on. Uh, but he was not a profane person like Esau who swapped his birthright, birthright for a mess of pottage. He schemed and plotted and planned to get what Esau didn't bother about, the Abrahamic blessing. But he never got it by his cheating. He got it fully and freely when he was leaving home. And then there came a moment when he met the angel. And his name was translated and transferred and altered from Jacob the supplanter to Israel the prince with God. And God deals with these people under their two names. He remembers their frailty. He remembers the change that took place. And right into the New Testament, the believer is one with two natures just now. One day we're going to have one nature again. In our unconverted days we had one nature. Now there's a commencement within us, the mind, the spirit, the inner man, although the outward man is perishing. A day is coming when every redeemed child of God shall be conformed to the image of God's Son and all the striving and struggling that goes to make up a good deal of our present experience will have done its work and passed away. So let's be thankful that he remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. That's the Jacob side. He also remembers the change that took place and this Jacob becomes a prince with God. The two will be honoured and remembered. Well now, let's take another aspect of teaching. Let's come into the um, 45th chapter. We haven't been able to set this out on the chart, but this is where this passage is leading to. I am, I'm reading verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. He's still referring, speaking to Cyrus. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There's a tremendous emphasis upon this fact. You'll see it repeated down this chapter. You notice in um, the end of verse 18, it comes more than once. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Uh, I missed one just now, that is verse 14. At the end of verse 14 it says, Surely God is in thee, there is none else. There is no God. And then we have it again in verse 21. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? But I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Saviour. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Look at that, none else, none else, none else. And it's the God who is a God who is a saviour. Now will you see that this is recognised in the New Testament? Let me take you to one epistle only of Paul to show you that this is so. That is the epistle written to Titus. It was not written to Titus to prove 
anything with regard to the deity of Christ, but it comes there in very insistent way. The epistle of Titus. Owing to time, I will not read all verses that lead up to it. Verse 3 of chapter 1, But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Saviour. So Paul says, God is our Saviour. And the next verse is, To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So in one verse he says, God is our Saviour. In the next one he says, Jesus Christ is our Saviour. Well, we, we find again in chapter 2, uh, we read verse 10 about the servant who should not purloin or show, uh, but show all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. God our Saviour. And then in verse 13 we are to look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of a great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our, us that he might redeem us. So there again you've got God our Saviour, and Jesus Christ our Saviour. And in chapter 3, verse 4, But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, God our Saviour, verse 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Well, there's three chapters and it comes three three times those set, set of terms. The apostle was not saying he's not saying, Oh, I mustn't say the same title of our of the Lord Jesus Christ as I've said of God, but he does. Well now we come back to chapter forty five of Isaiah and read on where I left off just now. Verse twenty two Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Now that has been said so many times as a challenge. None else. It's the key thought of this chapter. None else. None beside me. I know not any. Now look at verse 23. I have sworn by myself. Now who's the myself? Well the myself is God and none else, isn't it? I mean if you didn't believe doctrine at all, your grammar would can make you say, well that must be so. All right. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me. Who's the me? Why, the God that is emphasized in this chapter. Unto me. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Now that's written by Isaiah. Now will you turn to Philippians chapter 2. And remember that the one who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, was by upbringing, as he tells you in chapter 3, he had been, by upbringing, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, and he had been disciplined and brought up from his youth to remember that there was but one God. And he would know Isaiah, that passage, long before he became a Christian. Now look at this Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, so far, we would all agree. That speaks of our Saviour who died 
uh, the just for the unjust by crucifixion. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him not merely a name, but the name, which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul, writing to the Philippians, is quoting Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 says there's none else beside me, a just God and a Saviour. Philippians 2, there's none else beside me, that his name's Jesus. Well, unless Jesus is far more than the prophet of Nazareth and Joseph's son, we've missed our way a good deal. So here's a tremendous emphasis upon the deity of Christ. Well, now, will you turn back for a moment in this uh, study to another feature? We're back again in 43, verse 10. 43 verse 10 Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Now in the ordinary course, because this is stressing so much the foolishness and wickedness of idolatry and worshipping images, we would say, well, of course he meant that there was no God formed in the sense of a, an idolatrous image. But could we say, could we say this then? Before me, there was no God formed in an idolatrous, idolatrous image. Neither shall there be after me. Has there been no idolatry since Isaiah wrote those words? Well, I mean, it's a silly thing, isn't it? Because we know full well the testimony of the book is, yes, not only in Israel, but all over the world. Well, you say, what does it mean then? Ah, that's a good question to ask. Will you look at chapter 44? I'm going to read the very self-same word translated formed. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, and which, uh, which will help thee. Formed thee from the womb means a child born. Have you got the mystery of godliness now coming out on this page? Before me, says verse 10, there was no God formed. And in the next chapter, that means to be born of a woman. Well, Isaiah's already said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. And his one name is Emmanuel, God, with us. And the New Testament doesn't hesitate to give to the child Jesus that was born at Bethlehem the name Emmanuel, God with us. So without emphasising it too much, here's a glimpse of the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. If you're going to limit this to, to image worship, then there's something to be explained because he says, before me there was no God formed and neither shall there be after me. But there was plenty of idolatry after this. But never again was there an incarnation that God manifest in the flesh repeated the second time any more than there can be a repeat of his great sacrifice. One offering forever and never to be repeated. One incarnation forever, never to be repeated. 
So buried, you see, in these words, without coming right out on the surface, is a tremendous insistence upon the character of our Saviour. When you think of the word Jehovah Witness, and you have one of them come to your door and tell you that Jesus was a created being, you wonder why they call themselves Jehovah Witnesses for this very passage is saying just the opposite. That he was born a child, but he laid aside his glory. He did not think of a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God. He was willing to stoop to the death of the cross. And then the Apostle Paul lifts out these very words from Isaiah and applies them to him whose name is Jesus. Well now let's use what time we have for one or two other features. Chapter 45 again. I remember having to take a journey and it lasted, I don't know how long, perhaps an hour in a a motor, a car. And so I, I couldn't get out and the other one couldn't get out. And there we were stuck. And this one particular friend kept on saying that there was a passage in scripture which said, I form the light and create darkness. I make good and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And I said, there wasn't. He said, there was. I said, there wasn't. He said, there was. Of course, I was very obtuse because for a long time I didn't tell him what I meant. But don't you see the bias in that man's mind? He had been brought up to believe that God had actually engineered evil into this world and was responsible for all the sin that was in it and that Satan himself was as much a servant of God as Christ. He told me all these things and if you don't believe that's being advocated, there is a society that still published those dreadful things. Now you see, let's read what it actually says. Verse 7, I form the light, this is 45, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. You could never tell the meaning of a word fully unless you know it's opposite. Now let me illustrate that. As I've given this before to you, uh, you will immediately answer me correctly. But if you were to say to a little company of God's people without any preparation, what is the opposite of the word light in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4. Light or darkness? Oh no, I say, oh no. The opposite of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is weight. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. But supposing they'd been wise and they said, wait. I said, oh no. In the same chapter, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. Don't you see, in the same chapter, we've got the same word spelt in the same way, light. But you don't know whether it means the light you see by, or whether a thing doesn't weigh very much till you get the opposite. Now then, what does the word evil mean here? Because this word evil means morals, wickedness, it means calamity, it means judgment that bring, God brings down upon somebody as a punishment. How are you going to decide? We'll find out what the opposite is. If this other person was right, good and evil, oh, that means moral evil. But it doesn't say that. It says, I create peace if a people or a city is walking in harmony with my will, said God, they will have peace. And if they don't, they'll have evil. That is to say, a calamity or a judgment. So you've got to be so watchful when you're interpreting scripture and use this principle 
Discover the opposite before you come to a definite conclusion. Then would you look again at this same 45th chapter to verse 18. For this, thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. It's rather interesting to know that God is speaking. I always think of the challenge to Job. Job. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And I suppose Job, with all his modesty, would say, No, Lord, I wasn't. Well, the way you hear some so-called scientists speak, or oh, they say, Yes, I was there. Oh, I know. So the one who's going to tell us about creation at this moment is God who made it. I think that's a little bit like first-hand evidence, isn't it? That formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Now what is that word in vain? Well it's the word that comes in Genesis 1 verse 2. Without form and void. So here's one of the passages. I feel very sad sometimes when I meet a student who's now at school and comes over and says all the science master tells me that we cannot possibly believe the Bible to be true because nobody could believe today that the whole universe was created just 6,000 years ago. Well, I said, the Bible doesn't say that. Oh, yes, my, my science master says it does. Well, I said, I'd like to say to your science master, you're not scientific because surely you ought to read the book and know what it says before you criticise it. That's what a science is supposed to do. He never believes anything except he can weigh and measure and everything. So will you turn for a moment to Genesis 1 verse 2 in case this should be a help to anybody who's listening? It's an old story with most of us, but I think you'll put up with it for the sake of any who may be hindered in their belief. Genesis 1. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. Now there's no time, no date given to that. To put a date to that is just foolish. If you want millions of light years, you could have them. Doesn't mean, it doesn't say a thing about it. It simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the original, there are seven words, 14 syllables, and 28 letters, and three words, the basic words, are all multiples of seven. It's got its stamp on it in the Hebrew, right from beginning to end. These seven words that make the first verse. Now then, this is what I would say to our scientific friend. You haven't looked at your text yet. Have you noticed that the word was, in verse 2, is printed in ordinary type in the first occurrence, and then is printed in italic type in the second occurrence? Have you ever bothered to ask why a printer who's got a book the size of the Bible in front of him, should go out of his way and spend his time in putting different type for the word was? Well, he'd have to admit he hadn't bothered. Well, I say you're no scientist then. First of all, you ought to know why. So I'll have to tell this scientist what he doesn't know, apparently. That while the Hebrew speaks, says the verb to be, it's not written, it's assumed. And when we do have the verb to be in our Bible, it's very often a translation of the verb to become. Will you look at chapter 2, just for my illustration? Verse 7. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That's the word translated was. He was not a living soul till the breath of life and then he became one. So shall we come back to Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 and read it again a bit more intelligently. In the beginning, however far back that was, we don't know, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, you've only got to have a slightest acquaintance with the construction of the crust of the earth to know that it's gone through convulsion after convulsion. Look at the cliffs, look at the strata, look at your buried gold coal fields. Well, nobody in his senses would think that all those minute little particles that are going to make up the cliffs of Dover were all deposited one after the other 6,000 years ago. If, if he does, he ought to have his head felt. But you see, Moses knew his job. These critics who say that he can't be true because he doesn't tell us all about modern astronomy and nuclear fission and I don't know what in this chapter about creation. Well, he knew his work. He was writing for a nation of emancipated slaves. He gave just seven steps through the creative week in a series of visions and leaves it at that. He's, he's out to teach redemption, not science, and that was quite sufficient for all his purpose. This is not the creation of the original fabric of the universe, but the recreation of the earth that had been submerged before the flood of, of the verse 2, ready for the man who ultimately was going to be made in the image of God. However many men have lived on the earth and left their marks before this, they were the highest order of the animal world, and here was a change. This man was created in the image of God, and he was put in the garden for a test, and he became the foreshadowing of the last man, the last Adam. Christ was in, in the mind of God all the time when this poor substitute and type was experimented with, when I put it, in the Garden of Eden. Well, that's incipient in Isaiah 45 when it says, He created it not in vain. That's the word of Genesis 2. He created it not a waste, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And therefore we have this emphasis upon its habitation. Now let me see if there's anything I ought to uh, bring before you before we close. Um, this stress upon witness. You remember that in the epistle to the Romans, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the need of righteousness, he said, the Gentile world who had gone so deep into idolatry, they were without excuse because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And when Paul uh, rebuked the priests of an idolatrous people in the south of Asia Minor because they said, oh, the gods have come down and we're going to offer a sacrifice to uh, Barnabas and himself, he said, God hath not left himself without witness. And the same to the same effect Paul speaks to the philosophers at uh, Athens. God has not left himself without witness with regard to his creatorship and God has not left himself without witness with regard to his redeeming love. And so the last word that I'm, I'll give you in this series today is to draw your attention in verse 24 of this 44th chapter 
Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Now, if you're reading the Hebrew language, you wouldn't read the, read the word Redeemer at all. You'd read the word, thus saith the Lord, thy next of kin. You say, well, how, how can the Lord be my next of kin? Now, oh, you're asking me, but we've already answered it. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And if you want the classic on the kinsman redeemer, read the book of Ruth. And there you've got the whole story in four chapters. The Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator, the one mediator between God and men. He answered the cry of Job when Job said, All that there were a day's man between us to lay his hand upon us both. Now an angel couldn't represent God and an angel couldn't represent man. The only one who ever has done it is our Saviour. For he was God manifest in the flesh. He could, he could assure us that he's got sympathy with all our temptations and trials for he's passed this way himself. And nevertheless, the same epistle to the Hebrews which tells us that we have not a high priest who is not touched with the feeling of our infirmities, he declares that he is the one who laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. So you see, it's a consistent witness through the scriptures that God was going to come in the likeness of man to be the Redeemer. And that is the great emphasis in these chapters. Now I know I've skipped about and the great pieces of these chapters have been left untouched. As I said earlier, we cannot do the impossible. But if we could only focus attention on a few outstanding features in these chapters, for those of you dear friends who are studying them, I hope that what we said this afternoon, together with the aid of the structure that's before you, you will have a few finger posts to lead you into the depths of the grace and the mercy and the love which is manifested here of the one who was both creator and redeemer. Don't, don't let us forget the fact that we can answer that question so fully, a just God and a saviour. That sums up practically the doctrine of the epistle to the Romans, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We've only got another uh, section to consider before we approach the mighty chapter of Isaiah 53. Well, we should have to stop there, friends. We can't stride through that chapter. And I think you would agree with me, it will be worth then taking it section by section. So for the time being, we just once more say goodbye to you friends in all different parts of the world that will be listening to this little talk. And we pray that you may use it as it's given to you as a finger post only, pointing always and only and saying like John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world.